millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Napoleon Assist. It's day seven of the Waterly Remembered Extravaganza and I have got yet another treat lined up for you today as I'm speaking to the acclaimed author Lynn Bryant who has written the Peninsula War Saga series of novels and is behind the blog Writing with Labradors. Lynn, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing very well. Very pleased to be here. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you on. Tell us a bit about your novels for those who maybe haven't discovered your work yet but should definitely read your books. Uh, yeah, they definitely should. Um, yeah, the Peninsula War Saga is a series which starts, um, it starts actually before the beginning of the war. It starts in about 1802 and it follows the fortunes of a young infantry officer uh, called Paul Van Dahn who joins the light company of a fictional battalion, um, 110th Infantry. Um, and it kind of follows his adventures and those of, of his companions through the war, basically. Um, there is now also a second linked series which follows the fortunes of a Manx naval captain um, called Captain Hugh Kelly, which I, that kind of came about because locally everybody was saying, why are you not doing anything about the Isle of Man? Uh, which is where I live. And it's very difficult to fit the army into the Isle of Man at that time period, but it suddenly dawned on me I could do a very nice job with the Navy. Um, but the series are linked, so characters make their way in and out of each other's books quite freely. Yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of crossover, isn't there? And you're writing at the moment, aren't you? Yeah. So can you give us any... I am. For the I am. Uh, yeah, the one I'm working on at the moment is actually book six of the Peninsula War Saga. So we, at the end of book five, we had just got back from Burgos, um, which was an interesting experience. Um, not a particularly pleasant retreat. So yeah, the, this is a different book actually. This is distinctly different in a way because from the point of view of the main army, this is set in winter quarters. Um, 
So there's a lot in, in that section of the book about army politics, what was going on, um, what Wellington was trying to achieve in terms of the Spanish and the Portuguese, etc., and planning for the next campaign. Um, but because I wanted to have some action in the book, there is also a separate storyline which follows one of my characters who is actually one of Wellington's exploring officers going into northern Spain, where there was an awful lot going on up on the northern coast um, with the Spanish Irregulars. Um, and it culminates at the storming of a little coastal town called Castro Udiales, which was particularly brutal. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's been quite a tough one. And although your novels haven't reached Waterloo yet, you have written some short stories that give a clue of what might be happening. What, what does the future of your characters? We should probably say a bit more about them as well, shouldn't we? Yeah, the sh I mean, in terms of the characters, there are some spoilers. There are some things that from the short stories and from a couple of um, other novels that I've written, people can work out that some people definitely make it through. Um, for those people who are regular readers, I now get an awful lot of questions asked about the characters that aren't mentioned in future and whether or not they make it through. And of course, the chances are not everybody makes it through. Um, the Waterloo short stories, one of them, there are two of them. Um, one is actually set in the weeks leading up to the battle. Um, among the English community in Brussels and the culmination of that is the Duchess of Richmond's Ball which is obviously very very famous um, and then there is a, another short story which is set just before the Christmas after Waterloo um, and the theory of that it actually it's set mostly on a mail coach which is traveling in winter conditions and in fact breaks down so you get nine people who are thrown together they're all complete strangers um, and each of them has a story that is in some way connected to the battle. Several people were there. Um, there is another a couple of characters who have lost somebody. Um, and then there are a couple of other characters who are just affected by the ending of the war. So there is, for instance, one character who is, has just been lost his job. Um, he worked in, in textile manufacturing and everybody was cutting back. There wasn't the same need for uniforms. Um, so there, there's like lots of different background about not only the war but about peacetime as well and where it's going. Um, interestingly enough that is that has proved to be my most popular short story. Um, every now and then I sort of wheel it out again and people I get a lot of response to that um, which I think says something about how Waterloo affects people. Yeah it's a big it's a big thing it's a big thing. It is. I the Waterloo effect. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to talk to you a bit about that in, in a bit but whilst we're on kind of people being thrown together I have to ask this, partly because the podcast History Hack has done some great interviews over the last couple of months with Sean Bean from Sharp and Ewan Grufford from Hornblower, and also because it's been raised um, in, we put out a call for questions online, and, and this was one of the things that came up. If you threw Richard Sharp, Hornblower, and Paul Van Dahn and Johnny Wheeler together in some kind of bizarre universe crossover, do you think they'd get on well? Uh, it's actually a really funny question because 
this, I, I mean, we, I, it turned out this email was a couple of years ago. I was exchanging conversation with a friend of mine who is also a historical novelist, although a completely different period. Um, she writes the English Civil War, but, but we, we talk a lot about, you know, our writing, etc. Um, because in some ways the books are, are similar in that she is following a group of, of, of men through the war in the same way as me. So um, she asked me this question some time ago and I actually found it when I was thinking about answering your questions. Um, and we'd almost written a little sort of sketch trying to imagine how these characters would, would get on. I mean, the answer is, of course, Hornblower, it, it wouldn't really be meeting Paul at all, but he would meet Hugh Kelly, feasibly. And I thought a lot about this because I like, I like the Hornblower books. I, I'm probably, in terms of books, I probably enjoyed those more than I enjoyed the Sharp books. Just, just Ooh, the characters. That's a controversial one. <laughs> controversial, but that's the way it goes. I did, I did. But I mean, Hornblower is very funny because, of course, Hornblower, it's certainly from the book's point of view, it comes out to some degree in the series. It's, it's this very intense character. Um, there's a lot of agonising, there's a lot of self doubt, etc. And from the naval point of view, running into Hugh Kelly, Hugh Kelly is so far at the opposite end of the scale. Hugh is very manx, he's very down to earth. He does his job, he gets on with it. You know, he has, he doesn't spend any time, really. He's probably one of my least introspective characters. I think he'd get on very well with Hornblower. Um, I also think he would think he was nuts. It's like, why are you agonizing over this fellow? You know, go and get a drink, have a, you know. He really, really, really wouldn't get that aspect of his character. But I actually think they'd get on all right. I think that, because Hugh is massively tolerant. He can get on with most people. Um, there's, there's one or two characters he doesn't do so well with, but generally speaking, he's very chilled out. So I think he would be fine. Uh, Richard Sharp and Paul. Now that is an interesting one. They're very different characters and they come from very different places. Because of course the whole thing about Sharp is that he came up from the ranks. You know, he is this, this very down to earth guy. He takes no nonsense. And certainly in the books, if you look at the way Cornwall wrote them, on paper, he would thoroughly dislike Paul because Paul bought his way into the army and he bought his way up the ranks. You know, he has money, he has privilege. Uh, he makes no bones about making use of those in order to get what he wants. And yet below the surface, he is actually a, a relatively modern professional soldier. He takes his job incredibly seriously. Um, he doesn't take any nonsense whatsoever. He expects people to get on with the job. So I think, after a period of time, they'd probably work quite well together. The thing that always makes me laugh, of course, is that, that in the Sharp books, every now and then Sharp just takes off on, on some slightly crazy mission, um, which takes him nowhere near where you would expect him to be at any given moment in time. And this little sketch that, that Mel and I wrote quite some time ago involved Paul just losing his you know, because, because Sharp wasn't where he was supposed to be. You know, you have a company. You should be there with these men doing this. Why are you always wandering off? So I think it would be an interesting dynamic, definitely. I love the Sharp books. I mean, I haven't read them for years because it's quite hard for me now to read something like that in the middle of writing what I write. Um, partly because we, I do it very differently to him. And also because I have this underlying panic that something I read in a novel of that period now might accidentally work its way into my book because I think, you know, because I don't know where I've got that idea from, but it's a great idea. And I suddenly realise I'm accidentally plagiarising Bernard Cornwall. So I tend to read different eras for, for fun now, 
which is why I love these English Civil War books so much, actually, because they're safe. <laughs> it doesn't matter if I... Uh, but yeah, so that, yeah, I, that is a good one. And a few people have asked me that. I mean, some of my more enthusiastic readers get quite carried away on what they think would, would happen with Paul and Sharp. Yeah, there were some comments on social media about um, Sharp being thrown out of a window. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know who that was. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they both, in some ways, I think are quite fiery personalities. Um, and they do have that in common. How that would work if they ran into each other, who knows? It would depend on the circumstances. Well, if somebody's listening, I know Yoan Grafford was talking about resurrecting um, the Hornblower right, series. Perhaps we can kind of squeeze you into into the dynamic and see if we can kind of write some of your characters into the into the plot um we've we've talked a bit about your kind of your competition already um the napoleonic wars is quite a crowded field when it comes to historical novels you've got simon sparrow alan mallison obviously bernard Cormor we've talked about already and i know i've mentioned all of your main competitors there i apologize if you're listening definitely buy lynn's books and don't necessarily prioritize the others but they're all <laughs> to varying degrees, quite swashbuckling, whereas yours are more focused on sort of the personal and the emotional, particularly when it comes to how the experiences of war impact on your characters. And that's not to take anything away from the other authors, but there is a distinct difference in tone. What made you want to write about this period and write about it in the way that you do? I, I mean, I love this period. Although, oddly enough, I didn't, I've never really studied it at school or uni. I, I did history at university. Um, I got interested in, in reading this period, funnily enough. I studied South Africa when I was at uni um, and the, the development of, of South Africa. And I discovered Sir Harry Smith, um, who was of course commander in chief out there and then came back again as, as governor of the Cape Colony. And I found him really fascinating. I mean, some of his interactions, at, obviously he is an older person at the time, but some of his, his interactions with, with the local population, etc., and the way he handled things were quite unique among other colonial governors at the time. And I got interested in that. Um, so I read his autobiography and I was fascinated. I was completely fascinated. Um, from there, I started, you know, I then wanted to know more. I mean, obviously I knew the, the background of the Napoleonic Wars, but I wanted to know more in detail and I started writing, reading more and more. So I think that's where the enthusiasm came from. I got completely hooked. Um, and of course, there are, so, there are so many contemporary accounts that have been published. More and more seem to be appearing all the time. Um, people like Gareth Glover have done an amazing job of sort of discovering things and putting them out there which actually from a novelist's point of view makes it really interesting because I don't just have to read historians. I can actually go back and I can read published letters. I can read accounts. Um, there are some diaries out there, which actually makes it a lot easier to get, to get the feeling of how, how it was for these people. Um, obviously in some cases with an awful lot of embellishments, um, I'm looking at you Kincaid, but you know, they, they, I mean, some of them just love to put the, uh, put the extra bits in. Others are just very, very factual and, and down to earth, particularly some of the letters. So I think that's why that period really is that I just got completely hooked on it. Um, and I started work on the first book. I didn't really know where it was going. I, I didn't sit down and think I'm going to write this book and it's going to be like set in the same period as Sharp, but completely different to Sharp. I wasn't even sure at that point if it was going to get published. I just wanted to see what I could do with it. 
but I got very quickly interested in not just the military side of things, although obviously that's incredibly important, but the how it, it might have felt for these people and who else was around. Um, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's no secret that I write a lot about the role of women in the war. Um, in, in the early days, the first couple of books, the most common comment or remark I got from people is, what are all these women? Where did they come from? You know, there wouldn't have been that many women there. I was like, well, we're in the middle of Spain and Portugal. There were one or two. They, they yes. just were, you know? <laughs> like, there was quite a few hanging around to start with. Um, but I, I got fascinated once I started doing more work on it as to how many women did actually travel. Um, they don't get a lot of mention, but when they are mentioned, they are mentioned so casually it's almost as if it's normal. Um, I remember reading, I think it was McGregor, I think it was the, yeah, the Army, Army Surgeon McGregor's autobiography um, in the run up to Salamanca. Um, and quite casually, there, there, there's the sort of incident which, which is covered in my book of the big storm the night before Salamanca and some of the horses got loose um, in the panic and were sort of trampling over some of the tents. Um, and, and quite casually mentioning the sort of various officers' wives who had to scramble out of these tents in, 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 at great speed and in a very undignified manner before, you know, they got trampled by the cavalry horses. Um, but these people pop up all the time. So I think, and of course, there is the very well-known story of Harry Smith's wife, who he met and married out there, who travelled all the way through the war with him. Um, so I think I got fascinated in wanting to create a situation which is very different from some of the other books, where instead of there is a lot of a lot of swashbuckling and a lot of like in and out of, of various different females' beds as, as you go along the way with Sharp and one or two of the others, of actually somebody trying to live a normal relationship in the middle of this chaos, um, which is which is what I do with my main character who gets married quite early on in the book. And, and his wife travels with him with all the difficulties that, that that comes with. So I think it was partly that I wanted to write about some of the women as well as the men, um, and also to try and imagine some of, the, some of the ways people might have reacted to it, because we talk now about things like PTSD with, with military personnel and, and everybody kind of knows about it and accepts it. Nobody knew anything about that at the time, and yet reading some of the accounts and looking between what people say, it's very clear that some people did genuinely struggle with their experiences. Um, Absolutely. It wasn't, wasn't normally talked about. Um, and, and just how people felt about things, just reading things like some of the guys who were around at, at Badajoz during the storming um, and their responses to some of the things they saw. So yeah, I guess I, guess I write about the people because that's what I'm interested in. Um, and, and that seems to be, that seems to have been a bit of a hook for people. I mean, I'm quite pleased with the fact that the readers that contact me, I would say are equally balanced between men and women, that the books seem to appeal to both, which, which I like. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about PTSD, because I look a lot at trial proceedings, and there are plenty of trials that I look at where, with a, a 21st century Kind of mindset you look at them and go well this is obvious this is ptsd playing out in front of the court yeah. and and yet they they're being tried for things like cowardice or or being absent without leave um so it's it, there is a, a definite sense of it not being understood and construed as sort of a lack of moral fiber 
Um, and, and it yeah. is one of those things that you draw out really nicely. It was, I was struck by what you say about Harry Smith and Joanna though, because that is one of the purest love stories that we have coming out of the Peninsula War. Mm-hmm. It's very different to somebody like August Shaman who spends all of his time just oh. trying to seduce women. Yes. Um, <laughs> There's genuine devotion between the two of them. Was that a model yeah. for for the way in which you developed the storyline? Yeah. It was definitely in my mind. It was definitely in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that level of, of determination to stay together, I think, does definitely come from there. I mean, I, I first sort of, you know, as I say, I read about him quite early on when I, you know, when I sort of first started. And obviously, that's the very famous Georgette Heyer novel, um, which I can remember reading when I was young um, about them. But that I, I think I did want to to sort of... I think to present a different way of of looking at the role of women as well, because there is this assumption that, you know, because of the restrictions on women and and the things that they were and were not allowed to do officially in good society, that nobody ever did anything different. But actually the reality is a lot of people did do very different things. Um, And I think I, for me, the, the, the two characters work well together and they almost acknowledge that they work well together as a team. I think his, his success to some degree in managing his sort of situation is very much to do with the fact that he has the support system. He has somebody there who he can go back and he can admit when he has made a complete cock up, when he's feeling terrible about something, when he's, he's not sure. There is a sort of little bit that, that somebody actually wrote to me and said, you would never have seen this in one of the other books that he'd read about the Peninsula War, when, when Paul first gets his big promotion and he's going to be given control of a brigade. Um, and he panics. He just completely panics because he's, you know, he's had his company and he's done this and he's done some quite sort of impressive things. But all of a sudden, this is a really grown up thing. This is something that he's now going to have to take complete responsibility for. And his initial reaction when he, he walks out of, of seeing Wellington with this, he's like, and he's very ambitious. So he's this what he was aiming towards. But it's suddenly, can I do this? You know, and, and he can't go to his men or even his fellow officers, who, many of whom are his friends. He can't go and say, I don't feel OK about this or I don't feel confident. But he has a wife that he can go and talk to um, and say, a panic you know what am I doing then yeah, she can sort yeah. of like talk him around and say actually you know this is what you've wanted this is what you're aiming and and you can do this um but there are lots of little bits like that where I don't I didn't really want to create superheroes I just wanted to create real people who have doubts and who have uncertainties um and I think like e- even that sort of you know level of family sort of background there would be helpful to people um and I'm sure it was to Harry Smith Absolutely. I mean, it is one of the things that we kind of forget about the, the pressures of responsibility in, in looking at things like promotion. We tend to talk about you know, people buying their, their commissions and sort of trying to claw the way up a, a greasy pole. Um, but that, that pressure of responsibility is, is definitely something that's, that's ignored. It, though, those really nice human touches are what really comes through so well in your novels that is is missing not only from the history but from a lot of the other writing when you look at how waterloo is portrayed in novels i mean it always strikes me that the battle tends to just be not all of the time but sometimes it's just a sort of convenient plot device to bump off a character in a dramatic way um when you're writing how do you balance the history with the fact that you need to keep trying to develop the story for your characters 
for me, the history comes first. I'm a bit of a research fiend, as, as you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm quite compulsive about research. So the history has to come first. So, I mean, for example, if we take Waterloo, and I haven't written this yet, although I have got an idea of what I'm going to do with it, but, but with Waterloo, for the first thing I would do is, is I would read about the battle, I would research the battle, and I would work out where is the most likely place that my fictional battalion, given everything that we know about it, would fight? Where, if, if I was Wellington, where would I put them? Where would I put these, this, these guys, you know? Like through the Peninsula War, it's really obvious because they are part of the Light Division. So that's where they'll be. You know, I'm not gonna go sending them off somewhere where the Light Division wasn't, which is actually why in the current book, I've had to actually had to have a bit of a break off to go and tell this other story. Cause I can't send, you know, because they weren't there and it wouldn't be yeah. realistic if they were. So, I mean, the first thing I would do by Waterloo, the army had of course been broken up. This is not the Peninsula Army. This is not the guys, I mean, there was, there were some aspects of it. Um, you've got a huge variety of different nationalities fighting. So I will need to work out where is the most likely place. And then within that, where's the most interesting place that they could be. So that, you know, if I, if I find some interesting stories, I can incorporate those. I absolutely love weaving real stories into the novels, you know, sort of relatively sort of small incidents that I managed to find out about. So, I mean, that's my thing. I like to do that. So once I've worked out where they're likely to be and where's the most interesting place they can be, I then do the research on that section of the battle in as much detail as I can possibly manage and get in lots of different accounts if I can find it. And then I can start to write the fiction of, of my character's roles in that. You know, what, what, what do I want to happen to this particular character? It's quite funny, actually, people ask me a lot as I'm getting through the books, who's gonna live and who's gonna die? The truth is, I don't always know. I don't always know. I actually wrote the death of a very popular character for one of the novels. And, and I'm really glad I didn't go through with it because, because it's somebody that, that gets a lot of attention um, on Twitter, etc. If there's any threat to this person whatsoever, I actually did write Killing Off Johnny Wheeler. And then Ooh, I got part where I know, I know. She, she knows about it, but she, I mean, that's why she's so nervous. I did write that. And then I decided actually it didn't work with that particular plot. And I'm really glad that I didn't, you know, I, I, I changed that, but that doesn't mean it's safe. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it doesn't mean it's entirely safe. So hang on a minute. So yeah, I, um, I don't always know who's going to die. I don't use any battle as a plot device to, to bump somebody off somebody is just as likely to to you know die of fever or get something else happen to them because that's how it was in real life um, but I think I think that that's probably the best way I can summarize how I do it I, I the plot the history comes first and then the fiction that's an answer that pleases all historians who are listening to this <laughs> we've been talking a lot, a lot about historians read them well, that's because you you catch the gritty reality. Um, I mean, it says it all that you would turn around and say, but actually there's a much better chance that they're going to die of fever than, than of anything else. Because, of course, the reality was that what's most of Wellington's army, where most of the casualties come from, they come yeah. from convalescents in hospitals. We've been talking a lot about yeah. myths in this Waterly Remembered series. Are you ever conscious of the need to juggle... Yeah the reader expectations with the historical writing and what people misremember 
and and factor that in or do you just kind of put that to one side just focus on what really happened and if people get their eyes open in the process well then so much the better yeah i'm i'm pretty ruthless about that um i i know that there are reader expectations but if i find something that i don't agree with the standard view of it or what people may have read about it um i'm afraid i go with with what i am going to write um, so I do have the odd complaint along the way of, I don't think that's how this happened. And it is usually, quite obviously, somebody who has read fiction um, and has got a particular idea of, of what happened at this particular point. And, you know, they, they don't necessarily like my interpretation of it, but my interpretation is the way it is. Um, sometimes with a, with a particular event, I like to do something a little bit different to what I think people are going to be expecting. So, for example, at Badahoff, the logical place for my battalion to be would be in that heap of bodies in the breaches. That's where mm. they would normally have gone. But actually, I decided I wanted to do something a bit different. And because I've given the light division an extra brigade, which I'm sure that would have been a useful thing for them to have. I'm, I'm um, sure Crawford wouldn't have complained. No, he, he definitely wouldn't. Of course, by that time, he wasn't there to complain yeah, anyway. Yeah. But he would have loved yeah. it, and he did love it. Um, so I was able to remove them to a different section of the wall, which enabled me to give a lot more detail about um, storming by Escalade, etc. But, but it was a piece of... I mean, I, I'd been there, and I'd like worked out where they would be and who they would be near and who... So, I mean, it was, it was definitely plausible that they could have been there but I've just read so many accounts of Badahoff fiction and non-fiction um, and it, you know it's a very very dramatic event and, and going through those breaches must have been awful but I wanted to do something slightly different with it. Um, I mean somebody actually commented that the funniest that the, the thing that they remember about the Badahoff episode the most is that every other account they'd ever read the hero rescues a damsel in distress from Badahoff because of the awfulness that was going on. And, and I won't say my lot didn't, but they also came out with a puppy. <laughs> there was a lost puppy that somebody picks up in Badahoff. Um, was it a Labrador by any chance, was it? named after Crawford, um, and, and it is still with us in the books. It wasn't a Labrador, no. <laughs> it was a mutt. But, um, but yeah, so the, the, I mean, so many people commented on the fact that actually in the weirdness, but of course people were still people, you know, they heard what they thought was a child crying and, and, and it ended up to be a dog and they picked up the dog. Because, because people do weird human things, even in really, really stressful situations. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, I, I'm not, I am a bit ruthless with, with reader expectations. Um, at Waterloo, it's so massive. It's so massive. My plan is to put different characters in different places because otherwise you, I mean, one of the problems with writing battles is if you want to be accurate and you want to stick with your battalion, you know, you're really going to have to have a small section of the battle and they, they don't know what's going on on the other side of the field. So actually trying to get a big picture of a battle is quite difficult. Um, occasionally I will shift a character somewhere else. I did that at Salamanca because of course the light division at Salamanca, what were they doing? Nothing. <laughs> Hanging around, you know, watching what's All going on, firing shots every now and then. Um, so, I mean, the two things I did at Salamanca, I actually did give my lot sort of straight after the battle something else to do because, because they needed to do something. I was really tempted to actually almost do a Monty Python, like, you know, standing around saying nice day for it kind of thing, because actually that's what they probably were doing. But I thought I'd better throw in a bit of action. So I did give them another job. But I also, 
um, seconded one of my sort of mid-range characters over to, to Pakenham so that we could at least get the battle in because, you know, that's what I have to do. One of the things I really want to do with Waterloo is I want to have, I want to have a character coming in with the Prussians. Good. Because I've not read any, I, there, there might be a fictional account of that somewhere, but I haven't read that. I haven't come across that if there is. Um, I know that I, somebody might even have been the sharp book. Somebody was with the Dutch, I think. And, and there's nearly always somebody on Wellington staff. But I haven't come across anybody who is actually following what the Prussians are doing during those two days. And I want to do that because it's different. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's the thing that people tend to get. And people who are listening to this, this series will know that the real bee in my bonnet that I have about this is the forgotten foreign forces. Um, that were so crucial to how Waterloo ended up playing out. When, I mean, you mentioned Wellington staff just now, and Wellington is a significant secondary character in your book. Tell us a bit about, first of all, how he fits into your character's personal narratives. <sighs> Wellington, I love Wellington. <laughs> Everybody knows I love, I love writing Wellington because Wellington has such a personality. And of course, he, his letters, I mean, he shines out through those letters. So once you get into reading Wellington's letters, he's so easy to write, it's just fantastic. I love them, I love them. Wellington, in the first book, when I, Wellington wasn't going to be such a significant secondary character, really and truly, I think in the back of my mind, Wellington was gonna like hang around and shout a few orders and then go off and shout a few more orders and do his thing. But actually, I threw the characters together in order to facilitate a plot device in the first book. And they kind of just like, they kind of just started talking to each other and it really worked, it really worked. And then I thought, Wellington must, I, he was a really difficult personality, but he must have always had a re, also had a really incredibly difficult time during this war. You know, he was, he was there the entire time. He didn't go back to England at all during that time period. He was a, an obsessive micromanager on such a grand scale that I would think he must have virtually never taken time off apart from to go off with his hunting pack occasionally. Wellington must have really struggled at times. And I think I was in my head. I mean, I, I suspect there were one or two people on his staff that he did consider to be friends and he probably unbent them in a way that, that isn't recorded anywhere in history because it was done in conversation. But I kind of wanted to reflect that. I wanted to give him a, a friend, effectively, somebody that he could let off steam to, that he could yell at, that he could be, the, you know, be human. Um, in between. And I decided that Paul could be that friend. And, and actually one of the characteristics of Paul that I'd already written in is that he is thick-skinned. He is really thick-skinned. He isn't sensitive. I mean, he's sensitive in some ways, but like things just bounce off him, you know, so he'll lose his temper and then five minutes later, he's okay. He's this very big noisy character. But that actually fits in very well with Wellington because Wellington can call him all the names under the sun, he can kick off it and he can do whatever. Um, and Paul will be furious and he'll go away, etc. And, and then he's okay again. And that would have been the person that Wellington actually needed, is that someone who was, who was bright, who was discreet and who was thick-skinned. Because otherwise you would be, you know, you would be offended and, and it wouldn't work. So I sort of started to write that in a bit at the start and it kind of just took off from there. Um, then of course Paul gets married and, and the, the story of Anne with Wellington is quite funny because 
once again, she wasn't really intended to have an individual relationship with Wellington. But by then I'd, I'd read like both Rory Muir's books on the subject. And, and this tendency of Wellington to have intelligent female friends. It wasn't until I really read the book, more books about this, that I realised that the character I had written, even down to her appearance, is kind of Harriet Arbuthnot, but younger and, and in the war, you know? And I just thought they would get on really well. And it also gives me a chance to show a different side to Wellington because, because he can be a bit softer with Anne, you know, and, and he gets very anxious if, if, you know, she's not being treated properly, etc. And, and she manages him. So, I mean, there's an ongoing joke that if he forgets to eat, because of course we all know that he wasn't really that interested in food, etc. You know, and she gets a bit motherly and fusses over him and he'll eat to shut her up because it's her. So it actually, it, it gives a bit of a lighter side to, to the whole thing. Um, in the middle of, of really horrendous situations sometimes. Yeah, if ever there was a candidate for high blood pressure, it was certainly Wellington, wasn't it? You read some of his oh, letters to, uh, to horse guards and you think, can this man really have got that angry about all of these things? <laughs> They're extraordinarily funny at times. I mean, he was not joking, you know, he was really serious about some of this stuff. But, but yeah, I mean, amazing to read. Is it daunting trying to write uh, somebody like that who is a real historical figure, but they have this particularly unique character because you've got to make sure that you get it right. And that's not always easy. I love it. I absolutely love it. I love taking a real person, especially one as well known as Wellington, taking what we know about him historically and then weaving it into a fictional version that people will believe. Because that's the thing, is you have to... I'm quite proud of the fact that I don't think anybody has ever come back and said they don't like the way I've written Wellington. Because people who know enough about him get it. They, they get where I'm coming from. Um, even if, you know, some of these things that clearly didn't happen and some of these characters that he's interacting with aren't real. My aim is to get people to look at it and think, or people who know enough about him, to look at it and think, yeah, he would do that. He, he would do that. He would say that. Um, I mean, there's, there's one of my favourite scenes, actually, is at the end of book five. Um, I love this scene. And it's actually just a conversation. It's not, it's not an action scene at all. And it's at the end of the retreat from Burgos. So there's a very, you know, the very famous memorandum that Wellington wrote and circulated yeah. to all yeah. of his officers about how disastrous the behaviour of the troops had been. And it's all the fault of the officers. And there was nothing bad about that retreat whatsoever, as far as he said in this memorandum. It was only a week long, you know. Yeah, it was a bit unpleasant, but if only everybody had done the right thing. And of course, the people were dropping dead at the side of the road. They had no food because the commissariat took the wrong route. Um, the weather was appalling it was a horrendous experience and in in the fictional account of this one of my characters is in fact Johnny Wheeler gets left behind for quite a long period of time and with the assistance of somebody else he actually makes it back so he's had this or he was he was wounded he's had an awful experience he gets back after his sort of initial recovery and he arrives back at, at the sort of place that they're staying for, for winter quarters to find that Paul has just is exploding with rage because he's just received this memorandum. So he sits Johnny down over a drink and he says, you know, I've got to read this to all my officers and I'm starting with you. Um, and Johnny is this really placid character who just goes up and up and up and up with levels of rage because everything Wellington is saying, he's remembering what really happened. 
But you couldn't do that unless you've got this amazing letter. And I, I literally reproduce most of the letter as it's being read out. And then, and then my character's responses to it. Um, and I mean, people love that scene. They just love that scene because that's real Wellington. Yeah. I mean, there's a staggering disconnect in that memo, isn't there? I mean, he's, he seems to have com been completely unaware of the reality that the troops were starving, the weather was awful, they were harassed by the French the whole time. I and mean, he must have known that because Wellington was always somebody who put himself in the thick of the action. So he spent time with the rear guards making sure that the, 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 at least the rear guard was withdrawing as, as, in as orderly a manner as was possible. So, yeah. I mean, that, that memo always puzzles me. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I, my I, interpretation of that memo was that actually he arrived back in a complete rage, sat down and wrote it and sent it, and then afterwards thought about it. Um, and thought, well, actually, not everybody was that bad. And, and this part, I mean, the, the light division actually got through that relatively well, you know, in mm. terms of discipline, etc. Some of the other regiments, particularly in the early part of the retreat, from, because of course they came from two different places. There were those that came with Wellington from, from Bogosh, and then there were the others that came from Madrid. And I think that there was obviously some really bad behaviour, but there was an awful lot of really good behaviour as well. But he was just, I think he was just in a complete rage. I think he was mm. in a complete rage and he sat down and he wrote it. And then, of course, Wellington didn't ever go back and say, actually, that was a really bad idea. So there was, then, of course, he had to find justification as to why he was right about this, because that was Wellington. It's Wellington's equivalent of sending an email in anger. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we've touched on this a little bit already, but uh, um, it's kind of relevant to what we're saying now. A, a huge amount of research goes into your writing. One of the reasons I was so keen to, to interview you for this Water You Remembered thing is that I know how much effort you go to get things right. I mean, we've had exceptionally deep conversations about court-martials. That's not necessarily a spoiler for people whose, whose ears are pricking up at that. Do you, do you find yourself being drawn to particular historians' work, which you then kind of keep referring to when you're trying to resolve problems between the history and your character's journeys? Yes, I know. I mean, yeah, there are distinct differences for me between reading history and researching for my book. So there are historians I absolutely love to read who, and, and they're great for sort of getting the background and getting the sense and getting different interpretations of what was happening at the time and why. But their work isn't necessarily the first place I'll go to for research. I mean, Sir Charles O'Man, actually, his massive history of the Peninsula War, is, is kind of my Bible for actually getting where people were, what people were doing, etc., etc. He is my he is my first port of call when I want to find out what was happening, literally on a day-to-day -day basis. I also sometimes use Sir John Fortescue's history of the British Army for the same thing because in terms of the detail you can often get for, for where people were. Um, and after that, it actually tends to be things like Wellington's letters. Um, at the beginning of the current book, I actually wrote a, a scene that I really liked, but I had to completely scrap because I, I wrote it early and hadn't really done all of my reading. And then I suddenly realized at the point that this was happening and it was a scene involving Wellington, he couldn't have been there. He couldn't have been there. He'd gone off to Cadiz. So 
you know, I, I couldn't have that scene there, regardless of how much I wanted to, um, because he wasn't there. And so things like that, the literally, I mean, Wellington's letters are great because you've got the date and the location, you can go through and you can see where he was at different times. There are other letters and diaries. Um, one of my favourites is Thomas Henry Brown. He's brilliant for like day-to-day -day descriptions and, and he always has dates, etc. Sir James McGregor's autobiography actually has been chucked at the wall a few times, not because it's not brilliant, but because he refuses to include any dates at all. And it drives me insane. Um, I, it, I've found a couple of really good stories in his book that I then had to go to huge lengths to, to find out the sources for, just to find out when they happened. It's like the man was allergic to dates. It's so, it's so frustrating. So, I mean, yeah. Probably my favourite source is obviously Wellington's letters. Um, the Rory Muir biographies of Wellington are fantastic. They're really yeah. fantastic for getting, yeah. for getting a view of him, his relationships with other people. I think that my Wellington probably comes from his interpretation of Wellington, big time. Um, I mean, that was, you know, I've, I've met him now and he's a fantastic guy. But before I ever met him, they, they, he made Wellington so human for me that I was able to then put the fictional slant on it. Um, I mean, other authors, Charles Esdale is brilliant for getting a feeling of what was going on on the Spanish side of the war. Um, and I've been using him quite a lot. And he also wrote a fantastic book on women in the Peninsula War, which I read right at the beginning. Um, and that was a huge help, partly because it's got lots of information, but actually partly because I got a very strong sense that I was on the right track with what I was writing about. You know, it was, it was almost like, yeah, do you know what? This guy's done a lot of work on this and I'm not, I'm not going off my head thinking that this is relevant um, because it was hugely relevant. So, yeah, so yeah, there are particular historians. Um, I've recently found a, a really good source on of courts martial, for example. You know, which I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying. <laughs> I, I've got no idea who who might have written. No that. idea who that could be. <laughs> I can't imagine it's any good though. <laughs> Do you think there's a danger of <laughs> historical interpretations intruding into the novelisation of the period? You know, if you if you read too much Philip Dwyer or Charles Estelle, you end up becoming so convinced by their arguments that that would taint how Napoleon was portrayed. I know that Napoleon doesn't feature in, in the novel so, so far, but do you think that's, that's a, uh, something that you have to factor into your writing or is it just something that you just think, well, what happens, what happens? I really like this question. I think this was probably my favorite question. I really like this question because what I think is there is a danger of historical interpretations intruding into novelization, full stop. No matter who there are, historical interpretations have no place in the novel. They're for historians. They don't belong there. I, I mean, historians are brilliant at that. And I, I love what, you know, I like reading history for the sake of history. But if my characters start spouting Charles S. Dale's opinion of Napoleon, it would be hilarious, but total nonsense and completely inappropriate. I mean, I can tell you what my characters think about Napoleon. They think he's French, he's a really good general, he's the enemy, and they want to beat him. That's what they think. It's true, you know, they, they Absolutely. I mean, they don't, they, it's not that they don't have opinions or thoughts about the great men of the day and how the campaign's being conducted and what's going on, et cetera, et cetera, because they do. Um, they will all write and receive a lot of letters and correspondence in a novel is a great way of introducing what's going on elsewhere in the world because people obviously have family in London or at home in England and, and they write about what's happening in the news there. So it's a great device correspondence because we know that everybody wrote all the time. I mean, Wellington more than anybody else in history. 
Um, so, I mean, that is a great device, but actually their opinions need to be believable for where they were at the time. Um, and it's a terrible mistake to give any of them a crystal ball. Um, I have read, and I will name no names, but I have read novels where there's an awful lot of espousing what is in effect uh, a sort of modern view of why a particular thing was happening in history at that moment in time. My lot aren't talking about that. They're talking about where they're going to get supper from. You know, that, that's, that's their preoccupations at that time. Um, there's a really good example, actually, of, of where that can go wrong. Um, the, the previous book I wrote was about the Walkeren campaign. Um, it was one of the naval, it was the second of the naval series. Um, but it also features the army as well. And a reviewer, who is somebody that I, whose opinion I do respect, mentioned that he thought I'd relied very heavily on Jacqueline Wright's fairly sympathetic interpretation of Lord Chatham from her biography. The short answer is I did, because that is the only... I wasn't going to say anything about that, but... <laughs> <laughs> that is the only biography of the second Earl of Chatham. So it's actually really quite difficult, you know, to, yeah. to sort of get a variety of opinions from, from historians, because there's not a huge amount out there. And also, I, I wanted to concentrate on that, because I wanted a little bit of comedy in the middle of this absolute hideousness of that campaign. Um, and Chatham is completely perfect for that. I sort of gave him this, this lazy charm, where it's, it's like the kind of boss where you know he's not pulling his weight, but actually his immediate staff really like him and he always says thank you very nicely. So like his subordinates just run around doing everything for him until they can't do that anymore and it all falls apart. So, I mean, I did, I did do that, but my point would be what you see in that book is not my interpretation of Chatham and it's not Jacqueline Wright's interpretation of Chatham. It is the interpretation of the character who's, who's seeing him, who is actually a family that, that, that they were sort of pits were, were their patrons politically and etc. So he'd grown up knowing the family. So his view of Chatham is going to be heavily biased in favour of the guy. And, and that's what you're seeing in the book. It's not me interpreting what I think of Chatham or what he did at the time. If I had had a character in the book who was one of Chatham's political opponents, you would have seen a completely different view of Chatham even if every single event I wrote about was exactly the same, because you would have been seeing it. So I think the interpretation thing, you're doing it from the point of view of your characters, not, not you and not a historian and not anybody else. And sometimes characters will be incredibly sympathetic to somebody if you read about them. Um, I mean, I've obviously read as much as I can about Crawford, Blackboard. Crawford, and, mm. and you will hear people get quite passionate about what a complete and utter swine he was in terms of disciplining his men. But if you read my books, he comes across quite well because I'm not writing it actually at that point from the point of view of any of his enlisted men or, or who actually, funnily enough, appeared to quite adore him anyway, mm. or, or from a modern historian looking at it thinking what a terrible person he was because he did A, B and C. I'm looking at it from somebody who's a friend of his. You know, so they think he's great because because they like it. Um, yeah. So I mean, that's that's my view and interpretation. Is it's not it's not my job to put a historical interpretation on it. That's your job. And yeah, <laughs> I attempt to make it my job. Are there any <laughs> are there any real historical figures who you look at? And we've mentioned some of the big characters already. Um, Bob Crawford being an obvious one. Wellington's another. Um, Picton is another one who, who you could 
um, look at his character and think, you know what, I'd, I'd never create somebody um, kind of as, as fantastical as that. Do you come across um, figures within the actual Peninsula War uh, story and think, you know what, I, I'd never even write someone as ridiculous as that? Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, there are two obvious ones come to mind for very different reasons that I have come across. The first of them you could possibly make a guess at, and I'm going to go with Sir Hume Riggs Popham. I mean, he's another one. If you read some of his letters, um, which I've been very privileged to be able to get quite a good source of, um, owing to, uh, to, to Jacqueline. But I, he's actually probably one of my favourite historical characters to write. And like Wellington, I hear his voice in my head. But things like his level of self publicizing you know the, the the letters he wrote to the press i mean I, wellington he drove wellington mad he was doing a really really good job in 1812 on the north coast dealing with you know the, the french up there and distracting them etc so he was doing a good job but in the end i think wellington wanted to kill him because everything he did he wrote to the english press about and he actually, I knew he was doing this, but it wasn't until, I can't remember which conference it was, um, and Sylvia Gregorio actually gave a list of the press, you know, that he wrote to about this. And there was like pages of it. The most extraordinary thing. I mean, he was, you know, talk about the Kim Kardashian. I mean, he was just such a self-publicist. Nobody would believe you if you completely made that up because it's too unlikely. It's just, it's, I mean, let alone, you know, going off to invade South America without any apparent permission whatsoever he's just you just spend time looking at him thinking why would you do that why would you do that you know um i'm looking forward to when there's the, the, the biography comes out and somebody tries to explain why he does that because i'm still but he is he is actually completely fantastical and the other one who does feature in a couple of my books quite heavily particularly the, the second in the series is sir william erskine um, I have a theory, and, and I have no idea if this is true or not, that when Bernard Cornwall put together some of his more pompous, incompetent officers, he had Erskine in mind. Because some of the things that, like in 1811 in particular, um, during Masoni's retreat, that the series of blunders, he just goes from one to another. And sometimes he does the same thing more than once. So sending troops out into the fog when you can't see where you are or how many of the enemy are out there or you know, and everybody else is waiting. He did that twice within like a matter of weeks. So you would think the first time he would have realized you'd got that wrong, but then he went and did the same thing again at Sapigol and, and then went and got lost, with, you know, trying to, it was like the most extraordinary things. And Wellington, you can see, keeps shifting him around, presumably for political reasons until 1813, when he was finally removed from command, um, apparently for reasons of ill health. But I mean, clearly he had some kind of mental health issues, which were getting steadily worse and worse. But it just comes across as ridiculous. And, you know, I, I have heard people be critical of Bernard Cornwall for some of his, the way he treats, you know, sort of officers who have, have are sort of being incompetent and almost saying they could never have been as incompetent as that. Well, of course, most of them weren't. But but you look at William Erskine, you think, but some of them were. You know, there's a some hint of really cynicism were. there, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but then also sort of Popham's pomposity as well. Oh, um, oh I know. I, I know. That's why Popham is so lovely to write because he is genuinely 
that pompous. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a couple of scenes that I've written and I look at it and think, have I overdone it? But I haven't overdone it because I could provide you with a letter. Um, there, there's a lovely one that he wrote during the Copenhagen campaign, which is the, the first book of the Manxman series. Um, and he literally spends, it's half the letter is listing all the nice things that, that Admiral Gambia has said about him. He thinks I'm this, and he says I did this, and I'm really good at this, and I'm really good at this, and I'm really good at this. And you just read it and think, no. <laughs> but he did you it. He did you it. can't overdo Poplin's pomposity, can no. you? No, you actually can't. You actually can't. You just think, maybe I'm overdoing it. And you come across something like that, and you think, actually, you can't because he really, really was like that. And just really bizarre things. I mean, we haven't got to the bottom of this yesterday, but yeah, but I'm going to, I'm writing this as probably the next Manxman book, maybe the one after, um, of the 1812 campaign. And apparently he had his teenage daughter aboard ship with him. If there's any way you wouldn't take a teenage daughter as on board a, a man of war, surely? Yeah. 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 And I mean, he was very yeah, heavily engaged. I mean, but, but she, she was just there. I was like, why? You know, did he just like, oh, well, darling, do you fancy coming on a trip? You know, Dad, Daddy's going to go away exactly on business It's not exactly a holiday cruise, isn't it? Like, no. It's like, why did he do that? But she, I mean, there are, there are quite a number of references to the fact that she was there. I was like, why? Wow. You couldn't write that, could you? I mean, that's no, so no, unlikely. you really couldn't. People would say, wouldn't have done that. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to ask you something that I've, I've also put to Marcus Cribb and Rob Pocock when we were talking about the memory of Waterloo. You engage a lot with your fans and so on about the, the balance between fiction and history. What's your sense of the wider public's interest and engagement with the Napoleonic Wars? Because it's not on the history curriculum in the UK. If most people know about the period, it's probably through a novel. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's how I got into the period. Um, and yet, on social media, when you look at the discussions that happen, they're often quite tribal. What's your sense of how people think about the period? Because you must see a lot of people coming to the period through novels. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting, that is an interesting point because some of the discussions are indeed quite tribal. I actually think a lot of people come to the period through fiction. Um, some purely to start with through TV shows. You know, I think that, that there was a generation of people who, who probably started off with the, the sharp TV shows and then went on to read novels and maybe went on from there to, to sort of read some of the historical accounts. I, I think my sense of it is people love the period because it has that sense of adventure and romance. There are this extraordinary number of contemporary accounts that, that people can go to. And, and, and I think, you know, as I said before, people are, are discovering more of those all the time. But I think to some extent, this era is close enough to our own age to make sense to them. You know, just, just reading some of the letters of the period, they, they actually sound very modern, a lot of them. You know, they really, really do. And depending on who it is, I mean, some, obviously some writers then as now are more fluent than other people like Kincaid and, and Smith. Um, you feel like you're sitting down talking to them when you read some of the stuff they wrote about it. So I think it has that sense of closeness to our era, but at the same time, it's far enough away for it not to be as painful as probably some more modern history. Um, it doesn't have that sense, doesn't yet have that sense, that Victorian sense of sort of colonialism and empire, which I think 
a lot of modern readers now feel less comfortable with. You know, I think years ago, the sort of boys' own uh, sort of Victorians go and conquer the world thing, people were completely fine about. But I think people are a little bit less comfortable with that as a, as a fictional device, certainly for, for a gung-ho adventure story. Whereas I think the Napoleonic Wars, it ticks a lot of boxes for things like that. Um, and I think having said that, I mean, of course, the other thing, of course, it has this, this big theoretically glorious ending on the battlefield of Waterloo. I mean, it has, it's like, if you're writing a book or a series of books on it, you would write that. I mean, you would write that as fiction, this, this sort of nice rounded ending where, and then it's all over. Of course, it isn't all over. And, you know, there's so many ramifications that come from that. But, but it looks tidy on paper. Um, I think the other thing is, because novelists like Bernard Cornwell, and I mean, this is something I think he does extraordinarily well, have put so much detail into their books about the weapons, the tactics, the uniforms. People actually have a sense of knowing, if they read that kind of thing, they can have a sense of knowing an awful lot about it. Um, and I think sometimes that's what happens when, when somebody contradicts their view of things. Um, I actually think that's a very common thing in history anyway. People don't necessarily like, I mean, you've only got to look at the debate over Richard III is a classic. People get really aggravated if they're down on one side or the other of him. And, and it's almost like they don't, they don't want any more evidence. They don't want somebody to come back and say, actually, that's really not quite how this happened properly you know we now know this which changes this um and i think that that happens a lot with people who've read a lot about it and and then suddenly something comes up and people are, are putting an alternative point of view I, I get this a lot with fans of napoleon that you you try and sort of suggest that he wasn't the the messiah risen again and they they will absolutely land past you for it yes Napoleon is a very divisive historical character. Um, people get very angry on both sides. Um, and some very eminent historians can get very angry on both sides on the subject of Napoleon. Um, you won't mention any names though. No, absolutely not. I would never ever mention names in, in this particular context, but it is true. <laughs> you know, and I, I get that because there are always different interpretations of things. And I think it, in some ways, one of the things I love about the period that people are so passionate about it. People are, get really, really, really passionate about it. And you can come in on it from so many different angles because there is the purely military historians and then you get very social historians looking at, you know, the mores of the time and then you'll get the political historians, etc. And everybody has something to give in this. But, but you're right, they don't always agree, and, and it can get quite fierce when people don't agree. So we've had a few quickfire questions come in from fans um, in preparation for this. The first one's from Jacket, who I know we've been talking about um, a fair bit, and I think there's meant to be a tone of menace in the first part of, of this question, where she says, you're not going to hurt Johnny, are you? <laughs> and then she... Yeah, I would be quite scared to do that. <laughs> And then she adds her, her actual question, which is, what's been your favourite, they're never going to believe that I didn't make this up moment in your research so far? Yeah, there's been a few, actually. Um, I think the one that, that jumps into my mind was, was actually from this Blighted Expedition, which is the Walkerham book. Um, 
And it goes back to this, this thing about people, some people being concerned about me introducing women into the story where they think women don't belong. And actually in that book, the, the sort of heroine, of the, the first in the series, who is now married to Hugh Kelly, I wasn't really expecting her to have much of a role. I mean, she's in it at the beginning before he leaves, but my view was nobody took their wives to Walkerman. Why on earth, particularly once the campaign was underway and the problems with the fever, because obviously so many people died of, of, of illness out there. So in my head, she was going to stay at home and be safe, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, she would be mentioned. And, and then I came across, and it was actually McGregor's autobiography as well. In fact, this was one of the occasions when he drove me mad because I couldn't work out when this happened because he doesn't put dates on anything. And when he came, he came out quite late in the campaign because um, the Surgeon General that was out there became very ill, in fact, nearly died of the fever. So they, they shipped in McGregor. And he came out on the Venerable, which was Hempoppin's ship, except that he wasn't aboard it because he almost never was because he was always being important somewhere else. But the, he gives this description that the, there was actually a shipwreck um, off the coast. Um, it was a very, very hazardous coast. There were a lot of sandbanks and they got stuck overnight on, on a sandbank. And literally it was a storm that the ship was getting buffeted all over the place. Everybody thought they were going to die. It was really a major event. And he writes this really well. But the thing that astonished me is quite calmly chatting about the fact that there are two women, two opposite, well it was an officer's wife and her companion and it was actually um, Edward Codrington's wife and she wrote a very very good account of this shipwreck and what happened which is fabulous and I just I remember looking at it thinking I really want to use this but I know that there are going to be people who are going to actually think exactly the same as I thought before I read this which is nobody would bring their their wives out to you know to this situation and then when I, I actually went away and I managed to find Codrington's letters to his wife and he also wrote a bit of a journal which are published and it's I'm honestly I, it made me laugh out loud because like people are dying in droves and yet he's writing to his wife arranging for her to come out on a purely social visit and asking her to get some cheese for his landlady but this is real this happened Wow. And I remember reading this thinking, that is absolutely unbelievable. So what I actually did when I, because there are some very, once I sort of read the two accounts and I've got the dates, etc. Then Jacqueline, who of course is researching at the same time, got interested in this and she was actually going to, to the Naval Records. So she managed to find the actual log of the Venerable for this period of time, which gave me more detail. Um, and what we then discovered is on the same ship, there were, I think it was about 60 of the men's wives who were being shipped out to join. Now, I've never heard of this happening anywhere. Like, we all know there were like half a dozen wives allowed for each company, etc., yeah, yeah, etc. Yeah. There were 60-odd men's wives below decks during that shipwreck, and it's actually mentioned in Codrington's account as well. And they're listed, I mean, in the, the log, they were real, they happened. The only thing we can think, and I mean, we don't know, obviously Jacqueline's doing the biography of Popham, so she's going to try and find out a bit more. The only thing we can think is they may have decided to ship them out to act as nurses because there was a huge shortage of nurses through this crisis. But in all of the Peninsula Wars and everything I've researched, I have never heard of that happening before. That literally the men were already out there and they shipped out 60-odd wives to join them. That's unheard of, because at the end of the Peninsula War, 
one of the big issues that you have is that the wives who are who the rank and file have kind of created connections with who were out in Spain, so they're not part of the original mm. establishment who went out. They weren't on strength, then they didn't get a passage. Exactly, exactly. And it's yeah. there's this it's this incredibly harrowing episode right at the end of the Peninsula War of these wives being left behind. And that's one of the reasons I think that you have this massive spike in desertion yeah. that anything else in the conflict. So that's yeah. wow. Yeah, so London, that's probably my most unlikely moment. I'm not surprised. London SE4 mm. asks, how important is it to visit the locations of a novel and how do you explore those that you can't reach? I'm really practicing that at the moment. Because <laughs> I, I should have been going to Northern Spain this year and I'm not. <laughs> so, um, I... It's really, really helpful to go there. And I am incredibly lucky in that my husband is A, a very talented photographer, B, a very patient human being, and has tramped around more battlefields with me, you know, than we can describe. I am very lucky. I've been able to go to most of the places so far in the books. Um, and it is really important. At some, you get an incredibly good sense of it. I mean, the battlefield at Salamanca, I think personally, is fantastic for that because it's still remarkably open. So, you know, you can stand at a particular place and you know that, and they have these, I mean, I don't know if you've been there, but they have these fabulous interpretation boards now. So you can go there and you can think, right, this is where this happened and this is where these people were, and you can get a really good sense of it. So, I mean, it can be literally a good idea to do it from that point of view. Other places you go to, you don't get the sense of it at all. I mean, Badajoz, as it's a very modern city. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the modern city of Badajoz. It's just a city. But, you know, they, they've tried, I think, to do a bit more recently. But there isn't much of a sense at Badajoz of how things would have looked at the time. There's, there's some of the walls remaining, but a lot aren't. And yet, bizarrely, I remember I, I did a, a blog post. I did a series of blog posts when we did that first tour. Weirdly enough, I got a stronger sense at Badajoz I actually got quite upset about a hop, more so than at Sierra Rodrigo or some of the other places, which are actually far more intact and you can see more. Because they've got this busy main road going through what would have been the breach. And like lorries are going past you standing there, you know, you've got the sort of memorial stones on the walls. And I think that that, I don't know, that really affected me that all of these people died there. And yet here we are, you know, standing beside a busy main road. And most of the people around me aren't thinking about it or haven't got a sense of it or, or anything. Um, well, it's really interesting. So I think it really, really helps to go. It also helps just to know what the countryside is like. Because a surprising amount of, of the act of, of what I write about, people are just marching from place to place. You know, are they, are they going over mountains? Are they walking along a flat plain? Are they, just to get a sense. I mean, some places you just can't get it. No matter how hard you try, rivers change their course. Um, people re-landscape things. Um, Busaka actually is a really good place to go for the, to getting the sense of the height of the hill, but the slopes are now completely covered in trees. It's a real forested yeah. area, yeah. which it wasn't on the day of the, the battle. You know, so you, you're sort of standing at Crawford's command post thinking, can't see a damn thing. But of course he could, mm. you know, because, because it, there were none of those trees there. So I think it is really important. Google Maps... I'm going to say is our most fantastic invention when it comes to well, where I am at the moment, particularly, 
um, because I haven't been able to get to these places. We still intend to go because I'd still like to get the photographs and you know match them up with things, etc. So we will get there eventually. But just being able to look at the, I mean, Castro Uriales, you know, is, is the little town that, that this awful storming happened and etc. And I, I've had a lot of fun with that because none of the accounts are in English, really. There's a, the brief account from some of the naval officers, but everything else is in Spanish or French. Um, my French is improving. It's definitely improving. My Spanish is appalling, but it's amazing how much you can manage to, it, it, you know, you just need a bit of patience and a bit of help and, and people who speak Spanish that you know when you really can't make sense of what Google Translate is trying to tell you to, to contact and say, what do you think this means? Especially military terms, you need somebody, you can probably guess that one or two of the people that I've been asking, who can speak Spanish and do this. Uh, but people are incredibly helpful. But just like, you know, the castle and where it is, it's still there. Being able to look at it on, first of all, on a map, and then to look at photographs of it and think, ah, actually that makes sense now. I know where those steps are. I know where they came from. Um, I mean, years ago, it must have been so much more difficult for novelists, but there's so much you can do online. It's still not the same as standing there. No, it's still I not the same. The, the combat on the Coa, actually standing on the banks and, and then walking across the bridge at the Coa and, and thinking what it must have been like to try and get across there in those circumstances. You can't reproduce that by looking at a picture, but a picture helps. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. There is there's no replacement for actually being there in person and looking and trying to work out what was happening around you at a particular moment in time. Um, and one final question from Historyland. I can't believe I didn't think to ask you this myself. This is quite embarrassing that I, I didn't think of this one. What's the best part about writing historical fiction? The history. Um, yeah, I mean, the history is the best part. I always claim, and I will tell you that other historical novelists don't agree with me always, I think being a historical novelist is a big cheat because my plots to some degree are already written. Now that probably depends on how you do historical fiction, but if you do what I do, which is to follow real, a real army through real campaigns in real places with a lot of real, you know, historical characters in there, I already have the basis of my plot at the beginning of every novel. Um, sometimes I have to work out which chunk of history I'm going to put into that particular book. Um, but generally speaking, I have a framework to work from. So I don't have this thing where I think some novelists sit down with this blank page at the beginning of their book and think, ah, oh, where do I start? Because I know where I'm starting. If I decide, as in book five, that I, the, you know, the beginning of this is, is Wellington going into Salamanca just before, you know, the sort of battle, etc. Then that's where I start. And then I just have to think, where are my characters? What are they doing? What do they think about this? What is Paul in a temper about today? Um, but all of those things can be fitted into that framework. So I actually think that the best part about it, apart from the fact that I get to read history all day long and, you know, is, is actually that I don't have to come up with an original plot. So lazy. And one final question from me. What does Waterloo mean to you personally? Oh, that's a big one, isn't it? What does Waterloo mean to me personally? 
there are two levels of this. Actually, personally, it's huge for me professionally because it's the end of the, it's the end of the road. It's the last book in the Peninsula War saga, even though it's not on the peninsula, but I am taking it up to Waterloo. And that's huge on a personal level because by that stage, I will have been writing these books for a lot of years. I know all the characters really well. They're kind of my friends. And I'm not saying, I don't know exactly what I'll do after that. I mean, the Navy series is probably going to carry on for a bit longer because I'm quite interested in the war with America, um, which of course I haven't touched on at all. Um, but from a naval point of view, after a certain point, I think that, that Hugh and Daryl are going to head off to, to, to get more involved in that. So I think the naval characters I will definitely carry on with. I might do something more with some of the characters from the Peninsula War saga, but as a, as a unit, as a group, they're not all going to stay together. It would be unrealistic if they did. It would be completely unrealistic. I mean, I already know where one or two of them are heading. Um, but, you know, they, they won't all stay in the army. They won't all stay together. That, that little cohesive band, which has changed and shifted throughout the war. I mean, it's not all the same people all of the time because things happen to people and people, you know, died or moved on or changed regiments or whatever. But there is a, there's probably a core who are still at least in touch with each other, won't be there anymore. So that's big for me. That's Waterloo. In terms of wider perspective, I think I've always seen it as a bit of a watershed. The world before Waterloo and the world afterwards looked different to me. And it's not because everything changed overnight and because this was some sort of magical battle that, that solved anything. It was just the end of this huge conflict that impacted society at all levels. And I think that's what I was trying to address with going back to the short story, The Christmas After, which, as I say, there are nine people taking this mail coach just before Christmas, and each of them has got some story to tell. But it's not just about the battle. It's actually about how their world and society is not going to be the same afterwards. And I think for so many people, that will have been the truth. I mean, just looking at the number of veterans who will have come home um, and have to find a place in society, that's huge after a big war. I mean, we've seen it in more modern wars. So I think that I think Waterloo has that. It was the end of this long period of European conflict. And it was also a very human tragedy. And a lot of people died. And after spending years with the men of the 110th, I will never write about the battle without feeling that I might be about to lose some of my friends. I, it's made me look at war in a completely different way. It always will. So that's what Waterloo means to me. Lynn, it's been an absolute joy talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me for Waterloo Remembered. Thank you. That was the author Lynn Bryant, the author of the Peninsula War Saga novels, talking to me about turning fact into fiction when writing novels about the Napoleonic Wars. You can follow Lynn on Twitter at lynnbry295270024 and you can find out more about Lynn's books at lynnbryant.co.uk where you can also find her blog. And the next novel in the saga, An Unmerciful Incursion, is out on the 4th of July. Waterloo Remembered returns tomorrow when I'll be looking at why Waterloo matters and the next interview will be out the day after that. That's the 13th of June at the point that this goes out when I'll be doing the first double interview of the series speaking to both Marcus Cribb, manager of Rapsley House and Rob Pocock, manager of Campaigns and Culture Battlefield Tour Company 
about the forgotten battle of Waterloo, which, as you'll discover, is not the contradiction that some have suggested on social media. Remember to join the conversation online, post your thoughts on novels about this period on social media or in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net. Did you come to this period through a novel? What was it that sparked your interest? Remember to use the hashtag WaterlooRemembered and please keep spreading the word. There has been a phenomenal level of interest in the series so far. I am massively grateful to all of you. It's honestly so humbling. And please keep the questions, comments, likes and retweets coming. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you're compelled to leave a review, then don't let me stop you. I'll see you tomorrow. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been Waterly Remembered from The Napoleonicist. Take care, my friends. Stay well. Stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.